0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Graham Herbst, a community forest specialist with the Nebraska Forest Service. Graham Herbst is a native Nebraskan and graduate of the horticulture program at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. After working in the landscape and arboriculture industries, he moved to the Nebraska Forest Service to promote innovative urban forestry projects as the Community Forestry Specialist for Eastern Nebraska. Graham loves growing trees and gardening, connecting people and information through social media, and exploring each corner of the state. Graham, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart.
0: What is your first recollection of being interested in the natural world?
1: My mother grew up on a farm in Underwood, Iowa, just across the river here. And she was of the generation that was starting to move away from the farm into the city to pursue other more modern uh, career choices. And she went to school for nursing, but she still grew food and gardened at home, you know, ever since I was little. And and pl- plants have this visceral way of connecting us with our past that I just find really fascinating. Uh, for me, it was the the bridal wreath spirea that was planted all along the foundation of the house and it had this this arching habit that made it really easy to crawl underneath and uh a fragrance that's very specific to bridal wreath uh in the summer when it's blooming so i w- I've been connected with you know the natural world and plants from a pretty young age
0: that's a pretty evocative memory
1: it yeah. is, and there are other plants that i Didn't even know the names of as as a child, of course, but just sort of knew them as unnamed companions in the (laughs) in the landscape. Um, But whether it's smells or colors or you know, there's a lot of things like that that are evocative Mm of uh, childhood. You know, for me and lots of other people.
0: You talk about plants as companions. Yeah, this strikes me as unusual for many kids. We don't tend to regard our context or the world around us in the language of friendship is that something you were aware of when you were younger
1: I don't know it's not like I was talking to plants as a kid or anything along those lines it wasn't a anthropomorphic sort of thing um, plants operate on a much slower time scale of course than we do and so it's harder to relate to them than either other animals but it's interesting learning more about the roles that all these different organisms play in this ecosystem around us and um, you know that's very different in a city than it is in quote unquote natural spaces you know native uh areas so um it, it, that that kind of interest in what's going on in the city and the context around the landscape in an urban area really carries on to what I do today
0: maybe just describe your childhood a little bit and uh, um, how you interacted with the world and um, just how you grew up
1: yeah I, you know i feel real fortunate to have you know, both my parents in my life still. They separated when I was a, you know, a, a about ten or twelve years old. Uh, so there was that sort of turmoil. But um, aside from that, I had a pretty great childhood in terms of you know living on this block where we had block parties every summer. Everybody knew each other. You know, playing hide and seek all throughout the area. Uh, that sort of thing. So I, I'm I'm very fortunate from that perspective to have had a a fairly uneventful <laughs> uh childhood. So, um yeah, like I said, I didn't actively engage with plants at the time, but they were certainly the backdrop for everything that, that I had going on.
0: When was it you first thought that some form of career that involved the natural environment was possible for
1: you? Yeah. Well, um I started college at UNO and was sort of floating around without a declared major for a while. I took Introduction to Horticulture uh, with a uh, a mentor of mine now, uh, Steve Rohde, who is uh, at the University of Nebraska Omaha in the Horticulture program, and uh, that just clicked with me really well. All of a sudden, all these experiences I'd had through my mother and the yard at home clicked into place, I guess, and so I. Um, Pursued my degree in landscape design specifically. Uh, got out of college, uh, ran landscape design crews, and uh, for a while for a, a good company here in town that's that's not around anymore. And then found my way into uh, private tree service work from there. Once I once I started working for a tree service and getting you know pursuing credentials as a certified arborist, then I was plugged into their newsletters and job openings that way and found my way to Nebraska Forest Service through a job opening in the newsletter.
0: What is a certified arborist? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so, so sort of like a, um, a nurse, um, this is a profession where you not only have to, um, you know, you want to pay somebody to come do tree work on your property. You want them to, of course, be licensed and ha- carry their own insurance. Um, but a certification is... is a testament to continuing education that you're receiving to sort of stay on the cutting edge of the field so you can you know it speaks to you being current on practices and things of that nature i always encourage people to use either the nebraska arborist association or the midwest chapter of isa to find an arborist or two or three to give you an opinion on what you have going on in your yard Um, there are lots of tree services out there um but uh, finding a, a tree service that has not just a certified owner, operator, but crew members that are also the people that actually do the work are getting that certification.
0: When I think about Nebraska, I wonder how many people think of it as flat agricultural land. So, uh, w- what is the
1: Nebraska Forest Service? In Nebraska, we're lucky to have our forestry agency in the university system. Um, other states are. Unfortunate enough to have their forest service in the Department of Roads or some other agency that's not very directly related to the field. So um, we uh, protect and enhance forests throughout the, the state. Um, we have five different agencies. We have community forestry, which I hail from, rural forestry, forest health, um, fire, and uh, forest products. And so, those are five separate programs within the agency that have very specific focuses. Community forestry evolved out of Dutch elm disease. Before Dutch elm disease, foresters were mostly predominantly men uh, in wide brimmed hats, uh, standing in towers looking for fires, which is an important role. uh, But that was most of what foresters were and did up until Dutch elm disease was introduced through Asia and Europe to the United States and began to devastate this important street tree that we had all over the United States, um, mostly east and east coast and Great Plains. But American elm was a huge component of street trees when Dutch elm disease hit. And so uh, once that disease started to spread through uh, American communities, we needed foresters with a different skill set to work with neighborhood associations city councils, mayoral staff, to navigate this problem that was affecting not just lots of public trees, but lots of individual homeowners that needed current information, you know, accurate information to base their decisions on. So community forestry was in its inception, you know, probably 50, 60 years ago, if I had to guess. I, there may be a, a date out there that most people recognize as it's starting, but fairly young as, as, a, as a profession with community forestry, as I mentioned, we're, we're dealing with trees as individuals. We're not treating trees as vast swaths of resource to be managed as much. It is a resource, but you have so many individual property owners that it's it's a different thing. And we're looking at each individual tree because we have to have a different threshold for what's acceptable when we see red flags in the, you know, the body language of the tree, what sort of defects are obvious and how likely are they to fail? These are important questions when we have cars and electrical lines and homes and and people around those trees.
0: So by contrast, for example, with your colleagues in the Nebraska Forest Service that would be on the rural side, they may be focused a little more on a a woodland or Mm -hmm. a, a larger multi-acre site with lots of trees right. rather than an urban setting where, um, as you say, individual trees um, need to be attended to tree by tree.
1: Right. Our rural foresters are helping with windbreaks and uh, large plantings like that that have their own functional use You know, to protect crops and, and cattle and things of that nature and, and just provide some little strip of habitat for all the other organisms that we share this state with um ninety three percent of nebraska by by acreage is either agricultural land or ranch land, at least seven percent of the state that's either urban or left more or less as it was before settlement Now this is uh disconcerting in the sense that we also, as a state, have the largest number of linear miles of creeks, streams, rivers. We may not be the land of ten thousand lakes like Minnesota. Uh, but we have the majority of the largest aquifer in the country underneath us and uh, the largest network of other water bodies outside of lakes. So to come all the way back to, to your little jab at Nebraska not having any forests, and it's true for the for a large part, uh, but those forests are along all these water bodies that we have. And it's only kind of on the eastern edge of the state here where we have contiguous forest kind of between communities. and more of a, the remnants of the Ozark sort of ecosystem.
2: English trees in my garden far away land In between the palms and the succulent grove They lose their leaves in the winter Mark the seasons for him and for her Upon a time in the falling snow up against the sky made a silhouette show. England cries and she plays for him. The
0: cords entwined like a What does your role look like? on a sort of week-by-week week basis?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It does change quite a bit through the seasons. In the fall, I really celebrate the fact that we have a planting season all to ourselves as tree lovers, tree huggers, if you will. Nobody's planting tomatoes and corn and beans and things of that nature. It's really just the the woody plants, the perennial plants that are that are going in the ground in the fall. And so my job is, you know, it is, it is a lot of office work. There's a lot of email, phone calls, things of that nature. Because my job is predominantly a job to do with people. Trees are just sort of the common denominator. Nebraska Forest Service isn't a regulatory agency, so my job is primarily education and outreach, which suits me just fine. <laughs> it varies a lot. As I said, we have, uh, you know, planting seasons in both spring and fall. Uh, summer is a lot of uh, community consultations uh, appearing before city councils, uh, giving information that they need to make decisions on things they're voting on. Um, wintertime, we do a lot of workshops and uh, events that might be more for the public. Um, and there's a little bit of all that other stuff, you know, on those other seasons as well, but more of an emphasis at some than others on certain activities. I get to travel quite a bit. I cover the eastern half of the state. So that's over 200 communities that that I serve of some size or another. And uh, they all have their own challenges and opportunities.
0: Could you expand on that? What what are the kinds of decisions, lessons that you're trying to share, information you're providing, the challenges that communities face, and and the opportunities that they're they're trying to grapple with? What, What are they?
1: Most communities will have uh, at least a parks board, if not a a dedicated group of tree volunteers that have their own tree board. Um, Sometimes it's the parks department itself that's, that's managing trees. Um, So, so what I'm doing a lot lately is helping communities prepare for an Asian beetle that we discovered in uh, Nebraska in 2016. I was part of a small group of, uh, men and women, who were um, at an event where we were pretty sure we had found emerald ash borer. gorillus planipennis is a beetle that goes after ash trees specifically. And when you have a beetle from Asia that's evolved alongside their own species of ash, and then it's introduced to North America, our ash trees don't have the same defense against that beetle. So uh, it devastates perfectly healthy trees in quick order. To f- complicate the matter a little further, the beetle spreads by people predominantly. So it's not pr- easy to predict where it's going to pop up next, although there are, there are patterns that we can identify. Um, so I, I'm doing a lot of work helping communities prepare for uh, this beetle's imminent introduction to the community. Right now I'm doing some analysis on uh, ash density in these communities to help figure out where we need to send our efforts, You know what communities need the most immediate assistance. So this is an example of a topic that's new uh, to Nebraska. It's, it was confirmed in 2016. And so we're trying to stay ahead of that infestation moving and helping communities prepare so that you don't have this spike in tree mortalities that just crushes your budget. When I started in NF- at NFS mm-hmm. in 2011, we were having historic flooding on the Missouri River. And so that was sort of the topic to really hit the ground running with at the time. but. These are a couple examples of the types of things that I do outreach on.
0: What perhaps are some of the other challenges? I, I, for example, I have uh, silver maple in my backyard, and it's quite old, and it clearly is a tree that is not suited for close proximity mm. in an urban environment. So I, I'm wondering about maybe um, you know types of tree and, and other issues that might be unusual for urban communities to have to think about when they're thinking about
1: trees? Mm. Well, in terms of uh, things that might not be on people's minds with urban trees, I think part of it is just the immense stress that, that urban trees are placed under. So uh, a message that I always try to get across is that we have to best understand the context that we took a particular tree species out of and what we're putting it into in order to get a sense of how successful we might be. And that's a lot to ask of folks without a background in this sort of thing, but um, so some species are forest organisms, which sort of seems to go without saying, but what that implies is that there's only a handful of species that we use that are adapted to being grown as individuals, and they, if you take a forest species and you plant it in your front yard all by itself, it develops a completely different form, and that can have problems that need to be addressed. Um On top of that context change, we also have reflected heat from concrete and glass, the wind tunnel effect between tall buildings when we're talking about a downtown space, uh, de-icing salts that accumulate in the soil, change the pH, affect nutrient availability. Compaction is a huge one. The number one limiting factor for tree root growth is gas exchange in the soil, and so when we compact an urban soil in order to have a firm base for a street or a building, we smash out all the macropores, the large air spaces that allow gas exchange to happen in the soil. That becomes a real tough thing for many trees to deal with. And trees are tenacious organisms, so they may persist and survive, uh, but they're far from thriving and just sort of uh, getting through with what they have available to them um so so in terms of things that i try to get people thinking more about it it's that we're asking a lot of trees in a, in, a, in an urban context and we can we can be smart by choosing tree species that are adapted to whatever site we're asking them to grow in but we can also learn to adapt sites for trees as well and sort of meet in the middle between site preparation and right tree right place
0: so you've suggested the difficulty of an urban environment for certain tree species, and I want to ask what might be a good what might be good trees for yeah. urban environments and so I want to ask that as well as maybe the opposite suggestion, which is if it is difficult for trees to exist in urban environments, why would we have trees in urban environments
1: yeah yeah um, I'll start with the second one because I got a lot of passion there um, from an evolutionary standpoint. We evolved from a savanna ecosystem where trees were shade. They were um, often an indicator of a water source. Uh, They also provide a scaffolding to get away from predators. And um, probably a lot of other ancillary benefits that aren't quite as obvious. It's in our genes to love trees, even though we can turn on the air conditioning and turn on the tap, get the things that we need from other places, we still have this innate desire to be in and around trees. When When you look at the African savanna, there's a draw to that sort of context and the wide openness that gives you a view of where predators might be coming from, as well as the tree. You know, you want all those benefits together. And so it's not the point of covering the whole planet with trees, but stacking the benefits of these different landscapes into a habitable space that you can get along in life in. So to bring that all the way to today, the last numbers I remember seeing were that we were about 50% urban in the United States, meaning 50% of the population lives in a community of 50,000 or more that is projected to be true for the world by 2050 or so. So with our population worldwide becoming more urban, it becomes increasingly important that we figure out how to integrate trees into the urban landscape because they do provide so many benefits uh, to people that we can certainly get into um, what we want to plant. We do well to learn from Dutch Elm disease and emerald ash borer and the Irish potato famine and, you know, pick your historical event that you want. We cannot continue to plant a couple species on mass and expect that to go well. We have to put a few eggs in a lot of baskets so that the next insect or disease introduction that occurs and you know, we're in a global economy that's not gonna change. So, uh there is something else coming around the corner. We can't guess what that is, but um, if we're prepared with uh, urban forests that are not only diverse from a species standpoint, but also from an age standpoint, and also from a genetic standpoint. Those are the three types of diversity that we really need to have in urban forests in order to have the resilience to weather whatever storm is on the horizon. So with that in mind, with the idea of diversity being so important, um, I'm always leery of Mentioning a single tree or two or five that people should consider at the Nebraska Forest Service were famous for our tree lists. And so I would encourage anyone listening to uh, go to our Nebraska Forest Service website and under our publications tab, there's all kinds of tree lists for wet sites, compacted sites, the panhandle, eastern Nebraska, you know, lots of different contexts so that you can go from there. Uh, that being said, one species that I know isn't going to be overplanted just because I say something about it is uh, chinkapin oak. It's a it's a tree that's that's well known for tolerating adverse urban conditions, and it's not overplanted. There's some really good specimens in downtown Omaha that folks could turn to to see its performance. The other one, I guess, is uh, sycamore and London plane tree, uh, which was extensively planted on our boulevard system in late 1800s i think it was 1892 when hws cleveland who was a preeminent landscape architect he put together a boulevard design for omaha that connected residents with natural spaces that were outside of city limits at the time so these were park spaces that were designated to be left as such so that as people wanted to get in their horse and buggy with their, their lady and their picnic basket and um, you know spend the afternoon somewhere other than in a crop field, they would have those spaces sort of designated and set aside. Well, the tree plantings along those boulevards that connected those spaces had a lot of sycamore in them, and that's the dominant species that still exists today in Omaha, at least, where um, they stand as a testament to their adaptability to all the changes that occurred. On those boulevards over the last 120 years, um, which is considerable. So those are two shining stars, one that's been proving its worth for a long time and another that's uh, newer in Nebraska landscapes, but should be planted more.
0: Never
1: won't speak. I mean I got gather go on me church every week. So me I make love I don't mean a freak. So me say I'm not seek a mo tree. I buy one me I'm it elimin. I tell you it was on lovely seek a
0: mo tree Is there a particular tree or two in Omaha that for whatever reason particularly captures your attention?
1: Mm. Yeah, the Nebraska Forest Service, like I, I believe every state. It may there may be some exceptions, but all states pretty much keep a record of the largest of different species that they can find on record. Champion tree program. Our state champion swamp white oak is in Elmwood Park, in a part of the park that you would hardly think of as part of Elmwood. It's up more by Sixtieth and Leavenworth. As as uh, as Leavenworth uh, brings you into the park towards the golf course, uh, this tree is. Sitting over there on a west-facing slope with supplemental nothing. (laughs) It's the largest we have in the state. It's about 15 foot around on the trunk, probably about five foot and change wide. The canopy spreads over 110 feet wide in one dimension. Um, Not particularly tall, about 65 foot tall tree. But uh, when I was driving around with uh, Omaha City Forester John Wynn, he pointed this tree out to me. We got it confirmed as as the new Champion for the state. Shortly thereafter, I partnered with Earth Day Omaha to host a recreational tree climb in that tree along with Earth Day every year. Um, And that's been a huge success. We get upwards of 150 people in and out of the tree in about five hours. It's got this beautiful canopy. There was a maple downhill from this tree that was removed. And when that canopy of the maple was taken out, it created this amphitheater opening in the, in the oak that provided a lot of good rope access. So we can get about 14 ropes hanging from this tree. We get, uh, Camp Fonnell, Uh, they come down with their climbing facilitators. They have the, uh, the experience and training to, to host a climb. Uh, they have the ropes and the saddles and the helmets. And, uh, almost most importantly, they have the insurance to host an event like that. And this coming April will be our seventh year doing that tree climb. Four years ago, I also married my wife under that tree. And so I, I consider it uh, sort of a uh, family member as well. So it wasn't hard to come up with a single individual tree that I definitely resonate with, visit regularly. I think
0: living anybody that lives in a city understands, even if they can't explain it, there is an emotional draw towards a tree and seeing trees in the landscape not just green space but trees in particular mm-hmm. why is that
1: in terms of tree benefits we could start with ecological benefits of course there even though we've adapted to cooling our bodies and finding water other ways and things like that there are all the birds uh large and small mammals insects soil microbes fungi invertebrates of all sorts that all associate with and rely on trees as A link in the chain of this whole ecosystem happening so that's um we can encapsulate that and you know right there we could talk about some specific examples that are kind of interesting uh environmentally uh trees are still mitigating the heat island effect in our communities cooling our cities uh shading buildings that save us energy and real money trees also capture stormwater at least it's true for omaha uh, we pay to treat that water before we discharge it back into the river. And so any effort that minimizes how much of that water is going into our, our gray concrete infrastructure uh, that has to be treated is saving us real money. Uh, so these are not just environmental benefits, but economic ones as well. Commercial districts, research shows that people spend up to 12% more time and money in, in canopied business districts. They're more inviting. More pleasant to be in. People have shorter hospital stays and less pain medication that they take when they have a green view in their hospital, even if they're not able to leave the building. Those benefits only increase when you're actually interacting with that nature that you can see outside. Trees actually fight crime to some degree, to the degree that we can improve the walkability of a neighborhood and make it more desirable to walk to the store, walk to the park, walk to school walk to a friend's house, there are more eyeballs out on the street, and there are some types of opportunistic crime that have a negative association with more tree canopy cover. Now, there's also research that shows that there's some types of crime that are slightly increased by shrub cover, you know, in terms of places to hide, place to hide things, but uh, trees do play a role in that walkability, that friendliness of the outdoor space, that welcome sort of feeling that people have a hot, bare street is not quite as desirable to be on.
0: So so welcoming, inviting, and these all make perfect sense, Mm -hmm. but what is it in our hearts?
1: Part of it, at least, gets back to this temporal aspect of trees functioning over a long scale. And while that doesn't offer a lot of instant gratification, uh, it does give the sense of I'm pushing myself and my efforts out in time. You just have to plant a couple trees and see them five, six years later to get that sort of fire in your belly, I guess. Um it, it's a satisfaction that that it builds momentum and and tree planting just becomes sort of a, a way of life after a little while. But it, it takes that patience of not only planting something that you don't get any immediate benefit from, uh, but then letting time pass and seeing the change. The challenge of things not happening quickly is also kind of a good thing. Uh, Trees are sort of a metaphor for change itself. You know, if it's it's meaningful change, it's not going to happen quickly. And I see that not just with trees, but with the relationships that I cultivate around the state. Um, Nothing... Amazing happens overnight, typically, unless there's extreme circumstances. But typically, uh, the good, meaningful change that makes a difference is gonna slowly build over time. Whether it's the trees themselves that I'm, uh, you know, I get to play Santa with trees sometimes with the grant programs that we have. Uh, but also on the human level, the people that I'm trying to get to plug into their tree board and, and serve the community that way. The hope is not just that they would be a tree board member, but maybe down the road they're a school board member. Or um, you know, they have some decision making power increase over time and uh their time on that tree board echoes, you know, the same way the trees sort of persist over a long time span. So, um, yeah, on an on an emotional level I think that's It, it it's it's all you know, is it egotistical or not? I don't know, but I like trees, seeing trees as sort of an extension of my life. Um, the degree to which I can spark that in other people sort of determines how successful I am as a, as a community forester. Urban forestry is more about um, trees in the city and that complexity that we talked about. Community forestry is the people side of it, where as I mentioned, trees are just sort of the common denominator that I'm approaching everybody through. That's what we're there to talk about. But if you just saw it as a tree job, you would be blind to all the ways you could improve your skills as a people person. And I've always been really extroverted and never shy about getting in front of a couple hundred people and saying what I think about trees. So the job suits me pretty well.
0: When you're dealing with people and you're talking about trees and their ability to work with trees at a practical level and their ability to work with trees at a more um, emotional level for the good of uh, their community. What are some of the typical misperceptions that you hear and maybe some of the typical requests that you get for assistance?
1: Requests for assistance, uh, sometimes a tree board just needs some money. You know, Sometimes it's as simple as access to the trees to plant and they have all the other pieces in place that's that's easy <laughs> you know when we have people that are already engaged already interested and and passionate you just you know tee the ball up for them and they'll knock it out of the park but other times it's working with communities that have serious challenges i mean our, our rural communities around nebraska and throughout the great plains uh many of them are diminishing or vanishing almost it's hard for them to even keep young kids staying in the community and that so for me to come in and say, "You need to plant more trees that that is a part of community resilience and sort of turning the boat around a little bit in a positive direction, but it's not priority one necessarily, and so I have to be sensitive to what those other challenges are in those communities so that I'm not just this I don't know how to d- even describe it I'm not naive. About what I'm trying to do, uh, so misperceptions. I think most people think that trees heal themselves. Trees do not heal; uh, they seal over damage and make do with that with that dead tissue moving forward. So I use an analogy of a submarine. You know, Hunt for Red October, whatever. Pick your movie that's got a submarine in it. You get a hole in the side of the submarine, and you're underwater. They close the hatches the wood of a tree is compartmentalized in a similar fashion to prevent decay from spreading throughout the rest of the tree. And so um, trees often have a close proximity to to turf grass. And that's where a lot of problem occurs because we get chronic injury to the base of trees from getting hit by a mower or a string trimmer or something like that. And that has real implications for the tree's longevity. Um, Just knowing that that damage is permanent in some capacity helps people change the way they think and manage about trees. They are tenacious. They are, um, you know, as as Jack Phillips would say, trees don't die when they're killed. They, they take time. Uh, they, they circle the drain for a, for a while. Um, and it's usually not a single factor that's at play, especially in this urban context that we've discussed. There's lots of factors sort of compiling to make it hard for trees to the point where, the average urban tree might be 7 to 20 years old. There's lots of exceptions out there. There's 60, 70, 80-year-old trees in our cities sometimes. Um, But alongside that, there's a lot of attrition on the low end. Um, So if you want to think of it sort of like an infant mortality sort of issue, we have a lot of trees that don't last very long, and that skews the numbers into that 7 to 20-year average. So I, I think... Uh, People think of trees as very tough and very able to take abuse. We carve our initials into them and things like that. And to some degree, that's accurate. But there's also the precarious nature of an organism that doesn't really heal the damage that that it takes. That's that's one sort of uh, misconception that a lot of folks have.
2: I leaned my back against you, thinking you were an oak. I knew the wind could bend you, but I can't believe you broke. Now the wind could never break me, only your false love. Honey, I've been true, I swear by God above. I thought you were a willow, but you never wept for me. You went roaming in the wildwood like a ship that roams the sea. The willow tree is fickle and it weeps in the morning dew. My love is a pine tree and that's the only tree that's true. If I was mistaken, then take my eyes away. You made a bed in the wildwood and that's where I saw you lay. Honey, your eyes deceived you, it's true I touched the ground But I never slept there, I never let my long hair down
0: Are there any particular implications locally that you're worried about in terms of climate change?
1: Mm, Certainly. Uh, uh, USDA hardiness zones are based on 30-year averages of temperature. So while in the last 10 years, Nebraska has moved an entire hardiness zone from 4A and B to 5A and B, depending on whether you're in the north or south part of the state, we're definitely going to have zone 4 winters from time to time. And if anything, what climate change is doing is... It's making our transitions between seasons more erratic. So we have temperature swings that eventually will get to the point where they will be snapping trees out of dormancy prematurely. And then they start putting energy into leaf growth that gets snapped off by a cold front again, further stressing, taking energy away from the plant. Um, So climate change is going to be a big deal. The other big uh, challenge to urban forestry that I see uh, in Nebraska is. herbicide drift with the new formulations of dicamba and some other uh, herbicides that are used in agricultural settings a lot it's having substantial impacts on adjacent uh, forest land you know, there's a lot of politics and regulatory stuff behind the nuance of that issue but it's it's really impacting our rural communities in a big way the last one I'd say is um, there's a social justice component to trees that uh, most people don't consider as well Omaha is not entirely unique in this sense, but it's in the minority in terms of the relation to poverty and tree canopy. So lower income parts of Omaha tend to be where a lot of the canopy cover is, which is great in terms of underserved communities that are that have access to the benefits that urban canopy provide but large trees are also expensive to remove. Emerald ash borer is going to you know take out, large trees and most of them are out in the suburbs of omaha Uh, those urban forests are much younger and smaller and easier to manage and so where in 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 most major metropolitan areas i would assume there's more affluence where the big trees are that's not as much the case in omaha and so uh, we have an aging urban forest where there are a lot of people with limited resources to address and care for those trees and so we're always trying to make sure that our our grant funding is going towards people that uh need it the most and oftentimes those aren't people that have the time to serve on tree boards and you know volunteer for things you know they're working 9 to 5 or 7 or you know later how how we get our resources available to those people that are harder to reach is another part of what what I gauge my success on.
0: You have been working with trees for a long time, and I would imagine you're familiar with you know the vast lore that goes around the mythologies of trees, yeah. the cultural, the religious, the the social, the the folk narratives that surround the idea of enchanted forests and um, you know wild wild beasts and heroic quests and all of these ancient mythologies. I'm wondering if you have visited any particular tree or forest area that has conjured something of that supernatural or otherworldly.
1: Well, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't visited the coastal redwoods. Um, We do have a very special place in Nebraska near McCook uh, called Burrow Canyon. It's actually a, a... I think it's about five or ten acres of draw and ravine around some ranch land. And it has a remnant population of oaks that express genetics from both Gamble and Post Oak. And those the range of both of those trees has receded from Nebraska ten twelve thousand 12,000 years ago, you know, with the last ice age. And so it's, it's special to see, I mean, when you're out in this part of the state, and you come across trees, you see the very tops of them, because they're all growing down in the draws where water accumulates, because water is such a limiting resource in this part of the state. So um, it's strange to be standing on the ground looking at the tops of trees, and then you descend into this limestone sort of uh, ravine uh, with all these trees that are showing you traits that point to genetics from trees that have not existed in this part of the country for a very long time. But yet those genes persist in this little isolated space. So that's pretty special. We just did a symposium around that space again this year. It's the third one since 2009 where we did some educational uh, talks and had somebody come speak to the, the chronology of what's going on here and why it's special. So that's one that definitely comes to mind. Uh but definitely that theme of the the tree of life you see throughout traditions and and uh, you know, spiritual backgrounds and religions. It just I'm you know, I'm I'm not well versed in all the different cultures, but um trees definitely have strong symbolism throughout.
0: Howsoever you choose to define this question. Mm how would you describe your spiritual relationship with trees?
1: Um, I'm a fairly skeptical person, I'm not religious by any stretch. So so uh, I, I have more of a whimsical sort of relationship with trees, I guess, where this, I view this as my one ride. There's no second to try at this. Um, so as I said earlier, I, I love this idea that trees are um, a part of my legacy into the future and what I can sort of give to future generations, um, I, I don't have any problem considering that a spiritual undertaking, but I don't associate it with a particular faith of any sort, I guess. But um, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I, I I definitely would consider that spiritual, and that would be accurate way of uh, accurate adjective.
0: If you were a tree, which one would you be, and why? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, I would want to be something long-lived. You know, the, um, I took uh, a radio station to go see our state champion, Cottonwood. And um, I I got a scolding by my boss because in that interview, I, I mentioned that Cottonwoods are rock star trees. They live fast, die young, and spread a lot of seed. So rather than a tree with that sort of evolutionary strategy, that um, you know, I would want to be an oak. Of some sort, I really would um, a tree that uh, provides food for turkeys, deer, squirrels. There are more insects that that correlate and associate with oak species than any other tree. At least we know that's true for moths and butterflies specifically. Um, but in terms of a tree that's tapped into and has strong associations with organisms on all different levels of the ecosystem Uh, oak is way up there and so along with its longevity uh, those are traits that I would want in a tree.
0: My guest today has been Graham Hurts, a Community Forest Specialist with the Nebraska Forest Service. Graham, thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Stuart. What did I have for breakfast? I had a glazed donut.
0: That sounds pretty good.
1: Yeah, it was good.
0: That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar Mctizic. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's Radio Show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.